Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. I want to tell you my secret now. I see dead people. Charlotte Green is people! No. I am the father of What's in the box? You maniac! You blew it up! Damn you all to hell! Hello, I am Sam Adams, a senior editor at Slate, and I will be hosting a spoiler special on the movie Yesterday. Uh, sometimes the portion of the podcast where we describe the plot is difficult. This is not one of those times. Uh, <laughs> Jack Malik is a struggling musician who awakes after an accident to find that he is the only person in the world who remembers the Beatles, and more importantly, all of their songs. He passes their catalog off as his own and is on his way to becoming the most successful singer-songwriter in the history of music. But is he happy? And more importantly, does it bring him closer to Ellie, his lifelong friend and former manager, who has been in love with him since they were seven? Joining me to discuss yesterday and things Beatlefic are Ingu Kang, a sculpture writer for Slate. Hello. Hello, hello. And Chris Malanfi, who writes about the music charts for Slate and hosts the Runaway Smash podcast Hit Parade. Wow, thank you. Runaway Smash. I like that. Yes. Let's see if this movie turns out to be a Runaway Smash. No, oh, segues already. Here we go. It's very much in the spirit. Uh, let us start with our reactions to yesterday. Is it... I'm just reading all the terrible pun headlines of this movie, so I'll just ask, is it here to stay? I don't have a good pun. Wait, is that pun. bad? They'll, they'll come up. We, got, <laughs> we, have, we have two dads on the podcast. I would go across the universe to avoid rewatching this movie. Well done. And Chris? Uh, love may be all I need, but uh, I'm not sure I needed to see this movie. Um, <laughs> there's nothing it can do that can't be done. Uh, something like that. <laughs> I actually, I dug myself in a hole there, and I actually have no uh, no pun at the ready. Um, Help. This movie has a, <laughs> a, a <rubber laughs> an exclamation point. This movie has a rubber sole. I don't know. Anyway, so uh, if we talk about this movie, we could talk a little bit. The director of yesterday, I'll just say, is Danny Boyle, whose movies include Trainspotting and Slumdog Millionaire, and who dropped out of making the next James Bond movie to do this instead. But the real auteur of this movie is the screenwriter, Richard Curtis. Exactly. Um, he's the uh, sort of rom-com um, king of the late 90s and, and 2000s, the uh, author of mo- such movies as Four Weddings and a Funeral, um, Love Actually, and Bridget Jones' Diary. Did you come into this movie with feelings on the Richard Curtis oeuvre? Um, I definitely did. Can I confess, they so promoted the Danny Boyle connection on this movie that I went in foolishly slightly hopeful because look i'm not claiming that danny boyle is always a subtle filmmaker he he is one of the grand gesture and he likes you know big emotions and you know big gestures in all his films but on balance i'm kind of a danny boyle fan certainly from train spotting and and slumdog millionaire however you feel how that oscar winner has aged the minute I sat in the chair and they got to the title card where Richard Curtis's name came up, I think I may have audibly groaned. I then spent the rest <laughs> of the movie thinking that maybe this movie should have been called Fabs, actually, because that's kind of what it is. It really has much, much more to do with, as you said, Sam, the stylings of Richard Curtis. It, it is the, can I say this categorically, the least Danny Boyle-like Danny Boyle movie I think I've ever seen. I mean, he could be a real, and I, I don't necessarily mean this as as slender, but he can be a real hack when he wants to. Like, oh he, yeah, yeah, you know, like he can just, you know, like deliver a thing the way it's meant to be delivered. Not every, I mean, you would be hard pressed to look at some Danny Boyle movies and be like, oh yeah, he definitely shot that. He can, he'll just shoot the script if that's what you want him to do. Right. It, we're, hack is hack is the right word for it in the sense that, right to your point, he's he's shooting the script he's given. Yeah, I think the Steve Jobs movie, which I think is the last uh, Danny Boyle movie, I thought oh, felt very much like an Aaron Sorkin movie. This movie feels very much like a Richard Curtis movie. Um, I think I am like I have been born biologically. I was born biologically like allergic to Richard Curtis movies, and yeah, I had 
I actually didn't know either that this was the Richard Curtis movie going in. I saw his name. I thought, oh no. And then I thought maybe like the Danny Boyle part would save it. And it just did not on any level. Down to just like how like the love interest was styled. Like she, like Lily James is like the love interest in this movie. She has this like quote unquote frizzy brown hair and these like really big eyes. And it's, she's so obviously meant to be like Kira Knightley from Love Actually. It was all very annoying. I feel like Lily James, you know, looking at her in this movie, I was like, this is somebody who, you know, if rom-coms were still like major box office events, this is somebody who might be a giant star. But it, it did feel like, I mean, she was very much doing that kind of like 15, you know, 20 years ago template. Yeah, the, you know, the sort of sc she's a school teacher in this with the frizzy hair who has kind of loved this man right next to him, but nonetheless from afar since they were seven, she's been his manager and kind of the only person who believes in his music forever. Um, the first kind of significant scene in the movie is is he gets she comes up to him and tells him oh, she's got he's got a festival gig and he's so excited because um, you know the the English they love their music festivals and it turns out that he's playing the Suffolk tent at this festival, which <laughs> turns out to contain about four people other than him, all of whom he knows, and so he decides that's it. This is his last gig. He's you know put all the effort into it. He's just going to give up and go you know, back to his day job, which is working in a warehouse. And then he is on his way home, um, riding his bicycle when all the lights go out, not just in Georgia, but everywhere, all over the world, all at once. 12 seconds of complete darkness, inexplicably. And while that's happening, he gets uh, run over by a bus, lands on his face, knocks out a couple of teeth, wakes up looking um, like, like a cartoon, I believe, as it's described, um, and realizing after a couple of references that no one seems to pick up on that he's the only person he knows and apparently in the world who remembers the Beatles and their songs. He, you know, there's a repeated device in the movie where he plugs something into Google. Uh, in this case, he puts in the Beatles and he gets pictures of insects. Um, and he puts in John Paul George Ringo and he gets John, Pope John Paul II. And, yes. And, and any, any reference he puts into the Beatles, he gets some other Google reference. Google has been invented, but the Beatles are wiped clean. Yeah, there are a bunch of other unrelated and kind of unexplained things that are missing. There's no Coke in this world. There's only Pepsi. Um, there is no... No uh, Harry Potter. Yes. There was the one... Oh, That's no, the last joke in the movie. Yes. Yeah. Oh, let me say, yeah, uh, so there are no cigarettes. We find out at the end of the movie there's also no Harry Potter. How these things are conducted, we don't know. I think the best gag in this is that he plugs in Oasis. And because the Beatles don't exist, of course, Oasis did not exist either. Which I found funny as far as it went. But let's... How should I put this? Fans of the, let's say, Back to the Future universe who enjoy puzzling over the mysteries of different timelines and what happens when you change one detail and, you know, everything else produces a different timeline. This movie will frustrate you because, OK, as funny as the Oasis joke is putting on my pop nerd hat right now. Right. The idea that only one band would be erased. The idea, for example, he Googles Rolling Stones and the Rolling Stones still existed and they look like the Rolling Stones. Even the Rolling Stones rise to, you know, global prominence would not have happened in quite the same way if the Beatles had just never existed. So, like, you can't go too far, not to be a spoil sport, because I tend to be a spoil sport with these movies. I, I, I could bore you with how Rocket Man frustrated me last month because I'm that kind of moviegoer. But, like, the idea that simply by yanking the Beatles out of the timeline absolutely everything else including the existence of Coldplay who you know exist in this world uh, that's just implausible you know so you you kind of one of the things the movie asks you to swallow right from the jump is the idea that you know this one extremely influential band who kind of you know invented the self-contained unit of the band that writes its own material among other things that they could be eliminated and everything else absolutely every other band would exist in exactly the same timeline and ed sheeran would be famous in the same way Coldplay would be famous in the same way the rolling stones would have developed in the same way they they lost me almost immediately on that and i realize i tend to be the person who over obsesses about these things but that drove me crazy I think one of the other things that also drove me crazy is that it really ahistoricizes the Beatles. Like the Beatles were popular and they made it into like the rock and roll canon because they were very influential in a very specific period of time by making very particular contributions to the advancement of rock. Right. And it really like completely deflates all of that. There's also like no... 
recognition of like the different phases that the Beatles had. You know, like he sings Let It Be and he also sings uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand. Like I saw her standing there, yeah. To sort of bring in like a plot line from like the middle of the movie. The main character eventually ends up going on tour with Ed Sheeran, who is like, sounds like pop 2019. And to think or to conjure the prospect that all of these fans of Ed Sheeran are then going to go crazy after 60s rock. That sounds extremely 60s rock. Just drove me absolutely crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it is a little strange credulity a little bit that a song whose opening lines are she was just 17, you know what I mean, yeah. um, would be hit in 2019 or at least not uh, immediately get torn to pieces for being problematic. So there, there's a lot of stuff like that. I mean, I, uh, we had a similar conversation around the movie Late Night, which is also something that kind of riffs on the um, the, the rom-com template about that takes place in a world where a woman has been a hugely successful sort of cerebral late night talk show host for 20 years, but nothing else in the culture seems to have changed. And the idea in this movie is that the Beatles have kind of come out as as a clean lift. And they, you know, other things have seen other things that don't seem related have also come out like Coke and, and cigarettes. Um, but other than the Oasis gag, there's no sense of, and, and I think it's at a certain point, you're kind of asking it to be a Black Mirror episode instead of what it is. And that's, you just have to kind of get over that. But it is stuff right. like, you know, would there be a, would the Beach Boys have done Pet Sounds without Revolver? You know, you can get into like a gazillion thing with the, yeah, with the Rolling Stones have been the Rolling Stones without the Beatles as their rivals, you know, the way they kind of sharpened each other one record after the next. I mean, this movie doesn't care about that stuff. So at a certain stuff, you kind of have to, I mean, you could either, let it bug you or, you know, leave <laughs> or right. just or just swallow it because those are really the only options. And after I got over my initial annoyance with, you know, the Oasis joke, both chuckling at it and saying, oh, but the idea that all these other bands would exist, you know, after I got over that and realized, OK, fine, 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 fine. This is the conceit. Sorry, Chris, can you explain the Oasis joke? Because I did not get this joke. Ah, okay, the Oasis joke. Basically, the joke about Oasis is that they have very openly always emulated the Beatles from the moment they broke in 1994, particularly their second album, the one that broke them in America, What's the Story, Morning Glory. It's funny because I actually think there are Stones influences and other band influences on Oasis that are underrated, but their most famous song of all, Wonderwall, uh, first of all, it's named after a small side project by George Harrison during the years he was a Beatle. And they so openly ape the sound and the style of the Beatles that basically, it, you know, it's almost a loving, uh, affectionate joke on Oasis. You you could re- view it that way because Oasis themselves admit that they, you know, they regard the Beatles as Godhead. And, you know, the Beatles are a primary influence on everything they've ever done. And, one, and Wonderwall is also in Yesterday, that is the song that brings Jack and Ellie together. That's the song that he plays as, a, you know, as a kid at a, at a talent show. In there's 2004, a, a, yeah. Yeah, and there's a little flashback to that. And you see her kind of adoringly looking at him, uh, which she does a lot of in this movie. And um, that's where she kind of knew that he was the one for her, although it took him quite a while to uh, reciprocate that. But it rather flatters bands like, again, Coldplay or Ed Sheeran to imply that they could have developed and existed 100% the same if the Beatles had not existed. You know, that's not how rock and roll works. That's not how pop music works. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Okay, so Jack has this whole catalog of songs that are exist only in his head. And he decides that since his songs have not been doing it, 
Um, well, the, the moment he starts off is he's his friends are getting together. They're having a little party to sort of make fun of him, but also welcome him out of the hospital. They give him a gu- guitar to replace the one that was smashed in the accident. Um, and he just says, well, you know, this is a great guitar. Deserves a great song. At that point, he doesn't think any of his, his songs are great. So he plays Yesterday. And his friends and, uh, and Ellie are just, uh, I guess the word would be gobsmacked. By this, um, and they say, oh "My God, like you know, when did you write that? How did you, you know, come up with such a great song?" And he's like, "No, that's I didn't write it. Like, but I mean, it is one of the greatest songs of all time." And there's this, this line where his friends, "Well, it's not, it's not Coldplay. It's not Fix You." Yes. So he, then he realizes. Then he goes back and does this Google session and realizes that all these songs are essentially his for the taking. So he makes this decision to start passing them off at his own, just kind of locally at first. Actually, one of my favorite scenes in the movie when he tries to play his new composition, Let It Be, for his parents on their kind of yeah. uh, parlor piano. And they, you know, are like, okay, we've we've heard your songs before. I'm sure this one's great too. And then they just... Um, you know, they keep interrupting him. They sort of ask him when it's going to, you know, stop. They like get up to, you know, they get up to answer the door, take a cell phone call or to fetch a beer for their friend. He just keep this is let it be. But he's the only person that who knows that let it be is let it be. And they just he can't even get through it once. In this new parallel universe, they are hearing let it be for the first time ever yes. in the history of the world. Yeah. And they can't even sit still for it. Yeah. So he goes to the goes to the pub and sort of an open mic night. He plays some of the songs. Um you know, he finds like a friend who likes some of them. He cuts this, you know, sort of five song CD that he then goes and passes around at the whatever the I'm not sure what the, the warehouse. Yeah, it's basically like a, the British equivalent of like a Costco that he works at. Passes that around. He gets a little sort of local publicity, you know, gets on a, a sort of regional uh, Suffolk chat show, but he's not going anywhere. And, he, you know, and there's a point where he says, OK, well, you know, it turns out the problem is me. It turns out that he, given the greatest songs in the world. I still can't put them over. Right. But it turns out that Ed Sheeran has been surfing the web, spending some time on the website of the British warehouse as a pop stars are wont to do. Sure. And he sees something in these songs. So he turns up unannounced at the door of Jack's parents' house because he still lives with them, being a good millennial, and just turns up in his kitchen and says, hey, these are great songs. You know, my, my support act just dropped out. Do you want to come on tour with me? And this starts this whole sort of Ed Sheeran portion of the movie um, where he is essentially playing himself. What, what do we think of Ed Sheeran in this movie? It's fine. I think that Ed Sheeran mm-hmm. was very good to sort of be able to play second fiddle. But I think on the other hand, it's an extremely flattering version of Ed Sheeran where he's the first person to figure out that Jack's songs are amazing and then later they sort of engage in this like random songwriting contest because Ed Sheeran wants this because he's so astounded by Jack's talent and basically uh, Ed Sheeran plays like a pretty like decent pop song and then Jack plays uh, Long and Winding Road yes and basically he Ed Sheeran just leaves the room and says like I'm Salieri and you know like that egolessness I do not believe at all about Ed Sheeran but it <laughs> sure is like a very like good cinematic version of him I like that you said egolessness because I totally agree with you that it, it's actually overly flattering and it's the kind of so-called self-deprecating portrayal of a famous person that is secretly actually very flattering to that famous person. And that kind of nagged at me the whole movie. I mean, Sheeran was game and all reportedly, according to Richard Curtis and Danny Boyle, he was their second choice to be in the movie. Their first choice was Chris Martin of Coldplay, but I don't know. I, yeah, I found the portrayal of Sheeran overly flattering. I would also say the filmmakers, are kind of lucky that Ed Sheeran exists and is a hit maker in 2018, 2019, because he's the closest thing the current charts have to anybody who could seem even vaguely Beatlesque, even though a lot of Ed Sheeran's material is actually very post hip hop. But he's a singer songwriter. But he's fundamentally a, a singer songwriter who plays an acoustic guitar. So he, he he plausibly exists in the world of the late 2010s that he is a hit maker who could recognize the greatness of the Beatles. And this so. is this is a movie that I think it is worth pointing out that this is maybe the really only recognizes music as a thing that is made by men with guitars. Yeah. Um, there's when, 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 uh, when Jack's getting on the plane, uh, with Ed Sheeran for their tour, he, he goes on with his, he gets on with his sort of layabout friend who he's hired as, as his roadie. Um, cause I guess even a 
person who goes on tour with nothing more than a guitar needs a, a guitar tech for some reason. Yeah. But his friend makes this kind of offhand joke about like, oh, you're great, but, uh, you know, not not the rap so much. And it's it's a it's a very, you know, funny like, oh, look, it's here and came in our movie to, and let us make fun of how, you know, how bad he is at rapping. But it's also like the only reference to rap in, in the, the movie. entire movie. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Which kind of drove me crazy. Yeah. So it is it is. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll circle back around to this later, I guess. Um, but it, it, I mean, it is it is notable that even as Jack kind of becomes more more successful and his songs start to catch on, he never deviates from this template of being himself playing either an acoustic or eventually an electric guitar solo. I mean, even the Beatles had a percussionist and a bassist. Right. I mean, the Beatles were a sort of classic, like four piece combo. And he. Great uh, ones, by the way. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So he, is, he doesn't, he feels that, uh, I mean, he's sort of, I guess he's John Paul George and Ringo in one is sort of the uh, the rationale here. And, and maybe it's just, I mean, you just, that's three more characters you don't have to write lines for, I guess. Maybe it's just a matter of streamlining the plot, but it does seem noteworthy at the very least. I mean, uh, look, again, as per what we were discussing earlier, if you've accepted the premise of this movie, the movie is not entirely without pleasures. There are lots of nice little pieces of business like the Google joke. I rather enjoyed all of the scenes where the the one sort of conceptually consistent idea is because these songs now no longer exist in the world, he has to remember the lyrics himself. So one of the fun sequences I actually thought Boyle did a nice job with this was him trying to remember the words to Eleanor Rigby and like continually playing it over and over again. It's like, now wait, was there a, a wedding at the church and was it Father Mackenzie? What was he writing again? Because there's you know, like rice and socks and what? And yeah, it's kind of like right. when you first listen to the Beatles when you first heard Eleanor Rigby and you're like what is this song about like he's exactly having that much trouble piecing e- it together exactly and 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 Boyle does a nice thing where he actually like envisions the lyrics like he actually shows you know a wedding in a church and a priest like writing the words to a sermon that no one will hear because Jack Malik is trying to remember the actual words to Eleanor Rigby there's lots of fun stuff like that where each day he adds another song to his repertoire when he's like ah right that's how that song goes and he remembers the lyrics I found that conceit fun I also found that conceit fun, but I also wondered, you are like, um, what's the word, front-loading all of the best songs, and so this is going to be like a one-album hit wonder, like at best. Maybe like you could get two albums out of like the hits you can remember, but what are you going to do after that? Right. It's like if the Beatles only put out that sort of classic, like, uh, what do they call it? Like the Blue Album, like that, you know, 67 to 70, like, or 65 to 70, like greatest hits thing that I... Uh, you know, grew up with, like, if you put that out first, like, where do you go from there? Like, you've already skimmed all the cream off right, the top. Right, right. I mean, part of this was, I mean, that's just, like, logistical. They had a deal with, um, the deal they struck for the movie was that they could use, they had they had free reign with the Beatles catalog, but they could only use 15 songs. Right. Um, and I think I was reading an interview, I think, with Richard Curtis, where he was just saying, like, well, okay, look, we've got, you know, 15 songs, and I love I've Just Seen a Face, but nobody knows what it is. I mean, you've got you know, only 15 Beatles songs to do. Of course, you're going to do Yesterday and Let It Be and The Long and Winding Road. And I saw her standing there and and whatever else. Yeah, Yeah, they went for the big hits. Yes. I mean, also, if this movie has any idea in its head whatsoever, and I think I'm ascribing way too much intelligence to it, one fun thread that runs through it is that even songs as great as the Beatles are misunderstood by a modern audience that wants to simplify them. So, for example, when presented with Hey Jude, um, you know, goofy, self-deprecating Ed Sheeran recommends that it be retitled Hey Dude. And, you know, everybody in the studio is like, oh, yeah, that's much, much better. You know, hey, Which like, Jack like, agrees with. Yeah. And, and Jack finally goes with Hey Dude, even though he knows the song is Hey Jude. And then in another meeting, which takes place in a giant conference room at the big record conglomerate that Jack has signed to, they don't understand why he wants to call an album Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. If there's any concept that I don't know if it's Boyle or Curtis, I, I hesitate to give this credit to Curtis, is trying to get across. It's that actually what's interesting about the Beatles is that they are so very specific to their time. And there are so many quirks built into their songwriting that seem natural to us. Well, of course, the song is called Hey Jude, but they're actually a little strange. It, it is strange that, you know, the so-called purported greatest album of all time was called Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. You know, the, that the songs are a little odd or the fact that he can't remember the lyrics to Eleanor Rigby. And they're very specific about a, a bride and a wedding and a priest. And was there rice in the church and was it swept up? Right. And there's a bit where they're sort of like mocking up, you know, covers for his album. And when they mocked up a cover for Sgt. Pepper and it's a guy in a military uniform with like a red bell pepper for a head right and it's just like oh because that's it's it's sergeant pepper like what else that's a pepper who's a sergeant what else would it be 
so yeah so and it's like the the weirdness of that has been because it's been around since you know was literally in the world before any of us were alive i think it's just it's always kind of been that way and it is sometimes helpful to just kind of step back and be like wow that is a really odd title for an album right i think there was like one bit where they got at that just a little bit where he sings a hard day's night and someone asks him what does that mean and basically jack just sort of has this like blank look on his face and does like the equivalent of like next question so that's like the closest that it gets to like really acknowledging that maybe some of the stuff had was specific to like a time or place or sensibility as opposed to just like mana from heaven. And and part of I mean part of what's interesting about that exchange too is that like part of what made a hard day's night a hit in the first place is that no one knew what it meant. It was this weird like liberal. It wasn't even maybe it wasn't like a Liverpoolism. It was just like some weird expression that Ringo used. Right. And they're like, that's weird. Let's put it in the song. Uh, and the other went, three Beatles thought it was strange when Ringo said it. Yeah. Know? And it's that like, was a hard day's night. That was. And they're like, oh, that's the name. You know. Yeah. There's this theory about pop music that I think I've I've heard credited to uh, Jacob Slichter, who's the uh, drummer in the, the band um, Semisonic. And his his theory is basically that like one of the things that makes a great pop song is there's one thing in it that is super annoying and that's the thing that you hate at first and then you can't stop listening to um and so it's you know so it is like a hard day's night or it's like like what kind of a name is jude like but that's you know once you've heard hey jude a million times you love that it's hey jude and you can't imagine anything else so the the turning it into hey dude is of course it's more recognizable like any you know it's a good edit except that that's not part of what makes great songs stick is there's some part of them that doesn't go down smoothly at first. So this is this is the point in the movie where we meet um, Kate McKinnon, who is playing Ed Sheeran's manager and wants to be Jack's as well. And she kind of represents, I guess, Mammon in this movie. She is, uh, and also maybe like the last 20 years of comedy. She's one of the few things in this that feels like it's actually coming from now and not this weird like late 90s throwback. So she's this very um, openly greedy capitalist, like, come, let me sign you to my label so we can all make tons of money, mostly me, but also you. And so she is basically, you know, sort of non-carnally seduces him into this thing. There's a point where they um, have this meeting where she says to him, look, I've got this, you know, I've got this chalice of like, and it's filled with like fame and money, but you have to tell me that you want it, that you're thirsty for this chalice that you're dying for it. You know, so tell me right now. She literally calls it the poisoned chalice of money and fame. I love how Kate McKinnon, her philosophy of acting in movies seems to be that she is acting in a different movie from everybody else. Yes. Like I felt that in, in Ghostbusters, like yeah. everybody was doing one movie. Kate McKinnon was doing a different yes. movie and she's doing the same damn thing in this movie. And you will either love it or think it's ridiculous, but I, I mostly loved it. Yeah. Uh, so, frankly, I found it a breath of fresh air. So there's yeah. this uh, sort of classic rom-com moment in the movie where Jack uh, is trying to, he's worked his way up to uh, Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields Forever. And he's still trying to get the words to Eleanor Rick and he just can't and he realizes okay these are songs that are like rooted in a place that I've never been to um, so I have to go to Liverpool I have to go to Penny Lane I have to go to Strawberry Field and then maybe that'll just jog my memory so he goes to, to Liverpool gets what he needs out of it he's about to leave and who should show up at uh, the train station but Ellie um, who's basically you know driven there to in, in a sense give him an ultimatum I mean she puts it in a kind of a sweet array but it's really like stay and be with me and like and know that I love you and get over yourself and acknowledge it or, you know, go off to America to your marketing meeting and, you know, choose fame. And he, which we know is the wrong choice because we've seen him in a movie before, but he chooses fame. Um, and he goes to America and ends up with, I believe they refer to, if I'm going to get this right, as the major marketing meeting of meetings. <laughs> um, and this is, this is where the, the record company decides how to package him. And they decide that what's really distinctive about Jack Malik is, okay, sure, he's got great songs. Okay, sure, you know, maybe if we are, once our makeup and hair people are done with him, he's charismatic. Um, you know, he's a fine performer, but really distinguishes him is that this is all him. You know, he's one person with a guitar. He writes all his songs. And they, they even, the marketing head of the, the label even says, you know, this, in an era where pop songs are written by 16 people, um, you stand out. Because, and they decide they're, they're, going to call the album not Sgt. Pepper or Abbey Road, which is just some street that people drive the wrong way down, but they're going to call it One Man Only because that what, that's what distinguishes Jack Malik. So, Chris, I imagine you have nothing to say on this <laughs> subject. I mean, oh, God. 
on the one hand, okay, I'm being charitable. There's an element of truth to this in the sense that it, it's been said that in the streaming era that, you know, hooks have to come earlier in songs. Songs are more marketable if they have a single word title or a two word title. So like they're, they're definitely keying into a trend that, that is real and is happening and, and flattening out the quirks that made, you know, say 60s pop uh, interesting. On the other hand, I mean, the idea that, you know, this is just one man only writing this music and that everything would have developed the same way. I, I don't know. I, not to keep beating that dead horse, but that I found that endlessly frustrating. Um, we got to the place where 16 people are credited on a song because we drove through the period where two people were credited on a song. And, you know, one has to follow the other. And I don't know. The it, There was something I'm going to use the word that all music critics use eventually vaguely rockist about the idea that, you know, songs are purer when they're written by one person. I, I mean, it's this movie's trying to have its cake and eat it, too, because it's it's both poking fun at that idea, acknowledging, well, actually, it turns out this one man didn't write everything, but it's still sort of holding it up as a kind of back to the garden ideal. And, you know, if you know anything about how albums like Sgt. Pepper and Abbey Road were created and actually the labor that went in and the input that everybody from a producer like George Martin had to, you know, the guitarist Eric Clapton, at one point they play, I think they're playing um, While My Guitar Gently Weeps and they don't even bring in like, you know. Or doesn't he just, he just says like, I need my guitar to gently weep or something like that when right. they're in the studio. Rather than yeah. acknowledging that you need Eric Clapton, hello, to play, you know, the, the guitar line and while my guitar gently weeps. So and if Eric Clapton came in and like put down that solo on a song now, he'd probably get a songwriting credit. Whereas 40 years ago, he wouldn't. And that's the only, that's the difference. Not that fewer people are exactly Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I, I did a whole podcast episode where I talked about the fact that actually songs in the 60s took that many people. It's just we weren't crediting that many people. And, you know, now we do. And you can argue one way or the other which system is better. But uh, the myth of the single artist is is largely that, a myth. Right. I mean, I'm like, how many Elvis songs did Tom Parker get songwriting credit on that he never had anything to do with? Just because right. that was like, if you wanted Elvis to record a song, he got the publishing. Um, Inga, what did you make of that moment? I don't think I have much to add um, with regard to what Chris was saying. I think the one thing that really bothered me about that marketing meeting is that like I think you see something like 40, 50 people in this one extremely large meeting room and they're all fairly young, like all under 40 it looks like. And it's like very significantly the most uh, diverse scene that we have in terms of like the diversity of the extras, I guess. And one thing that we haven't really talked about yet is that the main character appears to be a, a British man uh, whose family background is Indian. And we see him with his South Asian parents who are like refreshingly very supportive. But it also drove home for me the like sort of like faux unrealistic diversity of like that music executive meeting room that you have this probably Indian British protagonist and there is like absolutely no acknowledgement of like the Beatles whole Orientalist phase where they went to India and sort of like brought in like the sitar and how like uh, arguably like did not make for like the best of their music but very much heavily engaged in that whole Indian fetishization trend of the 60s and 70s and I was so I was sitting there like dying to know what this particular uh, Indian Brit musician thought of that whole phase of the Beatles and of course it sort of just glossed over all of that and it was just like one point of possible for Son that of course the movie completely ignored. Yeah, you don't even have a moment where he like considers writing, you know, like a within you, without you with the like sitar line and been like, no, yeah, I'm not going to write that. <laughs> That's a little on the nose. Yeah. 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 I happen to like Within You Without You, but I can imagine that uh, that wasn't going to be one of the 15 songs that they were going to put in this movie, given their uh, their budget of songs. All right. So so Jack has his big album launch and copying uh, yet another move from the Beatles. He decides to have a big concert on top of a hotel rooftop. Only he, because he's from Suffolk, he does that at, like a, on the roof of this like little seaside, uh, closed seaside hotel. And he does that there. He's sort of come to his breaking point at that point. Ellie has uh, found a new boyfriend. And although he was not willing to 
stay behind and be with her. He's still not too happy about her being with another guy. Um, he does this very kind of anguished, I think deliberately Nirvana-esque version of Help with an electric guitar. He's finally picked up a backing band at this point. Um, and then he goes down to his dressing room and there he meets uh, two people who we have sort of seen in significant but unexplained cutaways earlier in the film, once in uh, Moscow and once in Liverpool, but not really known what they were doing. And they make their way into his dressing room brandishing a yellow submarine made out of plastic. And they tell him that they, too, remember the Beatles. And he thinks, okay, the jig is up. That's it. I've been caught. This is it. Um, And actually, they are grateful to him. They say, you know, basically, these are great songs. They haven't been in the world. The guy says, I can't sing. So they're, they're just kind of glad that he's done this. And they give him a piece of paper. Which, I don't know, did that feel like a failure of nerve to you guys? Because as they were foreshadowing these two characters and they were like watching Jack from afar in these various places like Liverpool and Moscow, I thought, ooh, this is how he's going to get busted and that'll make the plot a little more interesting. And when it turned out that they were just a little mamby-pamby and very happy about the fact that he was putting these songs back into the world and they were grateful to him, I was sort of like, well, that's not terribly interesting. I I don't know. That felt like a very Richard Curtis move to me, (laughs) just kind of, you know pasting a happy face on what could have been an interesting plot twist, but maybe that's just me. The, I mean, the idea, which we, we haven't gotten to this part of the plot, that, you know, the revelation of the, fa- of the authorship of these songs is deployed by the, the lead protagonist, the main character himself, in an act of confession, rather than him getting busted in some way, just seems a little, um, I don't know, more virtuous than such a plot might normally turn out in a movie like this. And that, that slightly disappointed me. The thing is that like, we really need the protagonist to come clean on his own. And the way that he gets to this decision is that when he is confronted by those two Beatles fans who do remember the Beatles, when they are leaving his hotel room, they give him a little slip of paper and he looks at it and his like eyes go big. Um, for a second, so we know it's momentous. And then basically he ends up at this house that is like right on the beach. It looks like it's going to like be uh, washed away like any second. And a old man opens the door with like longest shoulder length hair and brown glasses. And wouldn't you know it, it's an unassassinated John Lennon who is totally willing to get this weirdo stranger advice on like how to be how to love and how to live correctly and essentially the advice that John Lennon gives him is that he should tell the truth whenever he can tell the girl you love you love her and always tell the truth to everyone whenever you can something like that which is terrible advice by the way do not do that (laughs) right don't listen to John Lennon no boys But also, I mean, it's so infuriating to, I mean, like, I, I like, this is the only Beatle that we meet. And like, of course, it's infuriating that they are erasing sort of like the contributions of all of the other Beatles, including Paul, which is, let's face it, the, the best Beatle. But hmm. like, the thing that like, I found really galling is that like, now John Lennon is sort of like the repository of like romantic wisdom when we know that like in real life John Lennon was not the best husband and just like the picking and choosing of what they want out of the Beatles catalog while completely necessary to make a movie I mean this was just galling to me well I sort of felt about the John Lennon scene the way I feel about movies that were made after 2001 that show the Twin Towers in New York City if you're going to invoke that image you'd better have a damn good reason and you're you're going to you know basically catch people in the throat with this this image that is quite meaningful I mean I, you know I was uh, how old was I I was eight nine when Lennon was assassinated and it was a big damn deal you know it, it, it wounded a lot of people in the very sight of John Lennon it, it's meant to catch you up short when he opens the door and a man who very clearly looks like Lennon with Lennon style glasses who's just a, an artist living in a quiet seaside cottage and he's never become famous and this is what he does it's meant to blow your mind you know and it blew mine a little bit, but the gall of it more blew my mind because it's sort of like, well, okay, but if all you're going to do is have invoke John Lennon 
to have him spout greeting card wisdom. I, I'm not I'm not sure that that's worth invoking this, you know, beloved figure who was, you know, killed very tragically and, and you know, basically de- defined a generation with people remembering where they were when they found out John Lennon was killed. I, I don't know. Right. It, it seemed incurious in and incautious. Right. I mean, I mean, the death of John Lennon is like basically the first thing I remember. So it's and, and this I mean, this scene just felt like to uh, use the polite term boomer bullshit. Um, this yeah. reminded me very much of like the moments in Forrest Gump that mm-hmm. involve like, you know, uh, JFK and Lyndon LBJ. And it's just like you dug them up for that. Right. You know, like John Lennon was, you know, I mean, I, I think. Paul is the best Beatle. I think a right of adulthood is just coming to terms with that. He is the obvious choice, but also the correct choice. Um, you just Thank you. Some, sometimes that's true. Um, I have but, complicated feelings about this, but I don't. Yeah. I don't entirely disagree yes. with you. But about it, you know. But John was like a you know fascinating writer. He was like a great wit. He was like very funny. He would not have somebody come to his door and just give you this this total like Hallmark card bullshit. Like, you know, I mean, it's just. He would have done better than that. And I, I think it's just really, if you're going to exhume him for this scene, you know, as you said, Chris, I mean, you need to make something of it. And the movie really doesn't. He just does these kind of pop platitudes that if John had tried to put them in a song, Paul would have told him to uh, go back and write another draft. So essentially, uh, right after this meeting with John Lennon, Jack tells, I think, his roadie or Ed Sheeran that, like, in their next concert, he's going to do some special thing, and they just have to trust him. And I totally thought it was going to be uh, him taking John Lennon to this, like, huge um, stadium that is, like, there for uh, Ed Sheeran and have him play the songs. But they don't even bother to do that. Never mind the fact that the entire, you know, structure of that concert makes no sense whatsoever. If you're if if Ed Sheeran is the headliner and he's bringing out a guest, which let's say Taylor Swift does all the time, right? She brings out guests. Taylor Swift does not then give up the next half hour of her concert to like a guest musician. I mean, the one place that does happen, ironically enough, is hip hop shows. True. <laughs> which which apparently don't exist in the world of this movie. No, they really the don't. The Beatles the Beatles apparently like took down Jay Z and Biggie so are that you don't even mention them. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I just I don't I don't know where to go with that. But yes. Um, so so Inge, why don't you why don't you sort of describe like because this is the big this is the big you know, I'm just a boy standing in front of a girl movie moment that all Richard Curtis movies built to. Right. There's a version of it in Notting Hill. There's a version of it in, in Love Actually in Four Weddings and a Funeral. Um, you have to have, you know, a person standing in front of another, another person or in this case um, standing in front of a giant projection of their face on the screen of Wembley Stadium behind them, professing their love. So, Ingo, why don't you tell us how it goes down? Which is, like, honestly very horrifying because he basically has this girl that he likes and has her face, I don't know, like, projected to 200 feet or something. Jumbotron And basically size. her every reaction is recorded for the thousands of people who are there. And he basically tells them, I love this girl. And also, by the way, I have completely fabricated everything that you know about me. I did not write these songs. The names of the people who wrote these songs are blah, 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 blah. He does not tell them how he came upon them. And he essentially says the most important thing about the Beatles was were was their songwriting. And so I'm going to upload all of my songs, at which point Kate McKinnon's music exec freaks out because she was really looking forward to buying like a beachfront property with like the money that she would have gotten from those sales. Which, and by the way, presumes that the record industry in 2019 works the way it did in 1999. But never mind, I won't go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> and so essentially, she's still with this guy named Gavin. And Gavin says, well, I just want you to be happy. So he like walks away very quickly uh, from his relationship. Yeah. With, with and there's James. some woman who's just like planted in that scene who I don't remember even like having seen it in the movie no. before, but there's another shot of so them. So he's got like a backup girlfriend, effectively. There's a, and then there's another shot of them. There's like a little flash forward at the end of the movie and use one shot of them together. And I, it's just this weird, like, oh, it's fine. Like he found another, there was another female person on the planet that he yes. put his arm around. So it's fine. And so basically, Lily James sort of thinks about the fact that he has been lying to her for like the last six months. And then things, you know what? It's fine. 
And so basically, because he has given away all of these songs, he goes back to their little town that they're from. I think it's called Suffolk. Yep. And essentially, she goes back to teaching. He uh, also goes back to teaching because that is what he had been doing before. He had been working at British Costco. And he's singing Obladi Oblada with a bunch of students. And they get married and have a couple of kids, just like in the song. And you're supposed to clap for this. Somehow, I don't understand any part of this movie or what it's supposed to appeal to. Yeah, so let's, I mean, I think there are two two big questions to ask now. And first of all, as, as far as the romance goes and this wrap up, uh, I mean, well, first, I mean, do you buy it and do you care? Like, do you care about Ellie and Jack, like, at all, Chris? Considering that I found actually both of the lead actors fairly appealing as actors, the fact that I really don't care about their relationship at all, I think is a fundamental failure of the script in this movie. It's just, it's not a good rom-com. I mean, it's really not. The plot twists are implausible, um, you know, disappointing, not, you know, uh, telegraphed miles away. Uh, it seems like these movies always have to have somebody running to either an airport or a train station and they stick one in almost perfunctorily in the middle of the movie. Um, you know, to your point, the fact that, you know, the rival uh, dude uh, wasn't much of a rival to begin with and then just happily recedes into the background in the final scene um, felt fundamentally implausible. He's like the, he's like the Bill Pullman of this movie, basically, the guy that <laughs> he makes Bill Pullman look like I, I don't know what, you know, um, Jeff Daniels. Yeah, thank you. Well there you put. Go. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it just it wasn't. Even on the Love Actually scale, which, you know, I mostly do not like Love Actually. There's maybe like two plots among the, what, 15 plots in Love Actually that I enjoyed. I just, I don't even think it, it works as a, as a rom-com, which is how, it's like a rom-com has been pasted onto this sort of fantasy thought exercise, Back to the Future style movie. And I, I you know, that part feels entirely like Richard Curtis phoned it in. Um, Inga, what do you, do you care about Jack and Ellie? I do not. I feel like the there was like a period of time where like I think like in the 80s and 90s it was still okay to have a uh, rom-com completely hinge on like the deception of one of the characters and I feel like we've just moved past it and there are so many elements of this that feel really like hackneyed and outdated and the fact that they didn't even sort of like give her like 10 seconds to like process this news and be angry at him just felt so stupid the other thing that like felt very retro was that she gives a speech in the middle of the movie when she gives him the ultimatum of like you can stay with me or you can go be famous where she says um i've been waiting for you to like make a move on me for the last 20 years like since we were seven years old and it just felt like really like don't you also have a mouth do you also not know how to talk like, what is this? Like, how am I supposed to root for either of these dingbats? <laughs> it's just like, take place in a world where, like, I don't know, like, all the love poetry has disappeared and she's the only one. Who, like, <laughs> or something. I don't know. Um, so on the other, the other big question that this movie raises is kind of the, the premise, which I kind of left for us to discuss till last. But, like, is the idea behind this movie is that if the Beatles songs had not been released from 1962 to 1970, no one had ever heard them before, knew who they were, and they came out now, basically as is, they would still be giant hits. Ingrid, do you buy that? No. <laughs> I feel like that was very obvious from our discussion. But this is, I mean, like the premise itself drove me nuts because it's just like pure boomer masturbation, right? Like the thing that like was popular in our youth was transcendent and timeless and everything else was garbage. And the implication that like teenagers today who are really into like Ed Sheeran would super love I Want to Hold Your Hand. I was like, ugh, stop. But the other thing that like really galled me, and this sort of goes back to like the uh, rockist bias that Chris had mentioned earlier. The Beatles were not just songwriting. They were really great singing. They were really great uh, instrumentalists. They were great at visual iconography. Mm -hmm. And there's probably like 20 other million things that they were like very good at innovating that the movie completely ignores because it's just all about the songs, man. And so that also really pissed me off because I feel like 
that entire whole like marketing uh, in the like machine behind Jack probably would have come up with like something really interesting, maybe not as cool as Yellow Submarine, but they probably would have come up with something really interesting or like a way to like pair like this very old sounding music with a, I don't know, with like new visuals that like actually speak to teenagers today. And uh, something like an Ed Sheeran song. Yes. Yeah. I think basically what I want to say is that this movie offended me to my very core. <laughs> Chris, where do we go from there? Uh, nowhere. Um, you know, man, this man, this wave of movies that has hit screens since Bohemian Rhapsody. I mean, I guess arguably since Straight Outta Compton, but really the the wave starts with Bohemian Rhapsody in the last year. That sort of, I'll say it, dumbs down music history to sort of this very thumbnail sketch, fortune cookie kind of you know, back of the envelope uh, reading of how great music is made. I just find continually frustrating. I'm I'm the spoil sport who didn't even like Rocketman all that much, which everybody seems to have given a pass to because, you know, it was better than Bohemian Rhapsody or at least more fantastical than Bohemian Rhapsody. But all these movies seem to have this very simplistic view of how things become hits. I mean, I co-sign what Inku just said about what the Beatles were great at besides just songwriting. I would sum it up agreeing with you that it, they were great record makers. Do you know what I mean? The the finished product mattered. You know, the vibe of the record mattered and the time it was released mattered. And yes, the fact that the song's called Hey Jude and not Hey Dude matters because that worked in 1968 and it wouldn't necessarily work in 2018 or 2019. And you can't just kind of airlift these songs into the current popular culture and expect them to, to connect with people in the same way. But like Bohemian Rhapsody or rocket man, this, this movie seems to have a very simplistic idea of how things become renowned, how songs are written, how things connect with the public. And I don't know, it seems to provide people with a very pleasant pablum sort of idea of, of how, popular culture works but i it, it leaves me wanting in every case and even as i was enjoying sort of the little pieces of business and the few ideas in its head that this movie did have i was continually frustrated at the wild oversimplification right i have two rebuttals to the premise of this movie uh the first is 98 percent of all beatles covers ever um including the karaoke that people were singing outside the theater as i was leaving my screening um i've listened to a lot of them Almost no Beatles covers are better than the original version. Like Precisely. Like Aretha's Lady Madonna, sure. Um, other than that, not a lot. And and the Stevie's We Can Work It Out. Yes. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Like, it's just different. It's not necessarily better, but it's very definitely different. Wilson Pickett's Hey Jude, sure. Yeah, right, but it, but, right. Yeah, but, but it's, you know, there are a lot of versions of these songs and very few of them are better. And in fact, the versions of this movie, in this movie, are pretty bad. They're very sort of, you know, sanded down slick um, kind of coffee shop versions of these songs, mostly played on a, on a you know, single, often sort of finger-picked acoustic guitar. And they're quite dull. And I feel like, you know, the movie raises and then dismisses the idea early on that actually Jack is the problem. And, that he, and But I, I think uh, actually Jack is the problem. And he's not a great performer. I think, you know, Himesh Patel, who, who plays the role, is very, you know, charismatic as an actor, but he's not an interesting singer. The movie is not giving him certainly, like, interesting arrangements or anything to play off of. So these songs um, would not be hits now, would don't deserve to be hits now. My other rebuttal to the premise of this movie is my 10-year-old daughter. She loves pop music, loves listening to the radio, taking her to see, you know, Taylor Swift and, and Kesha, and she loves, you know, Charlie XCX and uh, you know, not so sure about Ed Sheeran and Panic at the Disco, but you know she loves what's on the radio. You know the kind of the hits that are going on now. If I put on the Beatles now, she and she's decided I like pop. So if I put on the Beatles, she goes, "Is this pop?" You know, and it, they just sound old to her. And and I'm not going to explain it to well. Actually, these are some of the most popular songs of all time. She doesn't care. And they, you know, they, the songs do not speak to her, and that's fine. I'm not going to, like, you know, tear myself up. Maybe she'll, you know, listen to them when she was a teenager like I did. You know, maybe she won't. But, I mean, I don't really think, you know, there's any basis to support this. I mean, they are they are incredible songs, but they are also incredible songs that came out of their time. And things like, you know, Paul McCartney getting, like, the huge, you know, 
bass sounds on Revolver by like reverse, by like turning a speaker cabinet into a microphone because they couldn't figure out how to make his bass sound like James Jamerson's from the Motown singles. Like that was, you know, they were playing off all these other things. And like you were saying at the beginning, Chris, I mean, there's a whole context that they were doing and this is this comes up a lot when people say like oh well this you know they say this a lot about movies like well that movie would never be a hit if they put it out now and it's like well because they wouldn't put it out now because part of what artists do is respond to their time and if you know Paul McCartney and John Lennon were in their 20s and writing songs in 2019 they might well be doing it with 14 other people they certainly be using you know samplers they might not they might not be playing guitars for God's sake you know so it's just it's such a weird premise and it, it there's there does seem to me to be an extreme degree of writerly narcissism in it so this, the story of this movie actually came from a, a person named Jack Barth um, who then Richard Curtis kind of you know heard the idea and was like I like that idea. Let me write the screenplay. And it does not surprise me that this idea was so appealing to a screenwriter who is, I mean, one of the very few, maybe up there with like Charlie Kaufman is like one of the few sort of actual brand name writers of the last 20 years. That's like a pretty uncommon thing now. We're very right. much in a, an era defined by sort of auteurist, auteur like writer directors. And he does direct occasionally, but you're right. He's mostly known as a writer. Right. So it does not surprise me that he would be so drawn to an idea where it's really like, you know what really matters? The writer. And if anybody sang this song, it would be a hit because the, it was, it's a great, you know, it's a great written song. So that's and so it does not surprise me that that would appeal to him. But I think it's uh, wrong. I mean, we, we've just all seen this movie at a sneak preview and it has not officially opened yet. Do we think this will be a hit? Because the other thing that fascinates me about this current wave of populist, uh, you know, pop movies is Bohemian Rhapsody wildly exceeded everybody's expectations. Rocket Man has done all right. Do we think that people will find this version of Beatles history appealing? I feel like the answer is probably no. There was a smattering of applause at the end of my screening, to which then I said, boo. But um, I don't know. I feel like we had a we had like a different uh, Beatles musical like ten years ago called Across the Universe, directed by Julie Taymor. Yeah, I was wondering how you guys felt about that. I mean, that movie is also terrible, but this isn't much better, and so I don't know why it would be an improvement. I find also, yeah, and I find also to Sam's point that the Beatles, whether it's Julie Taymor directing Across the Universe or this movie really get flattened into this kind of candy-colored, happy, pop art, Peter Max kind of thing. You know, to the point you made earlier, Ingu, about how the songs are made all interchangeable such that Hey Jude is the same as The Long and Winding Road, is the same as I Want to Hold Your Hand, is the same as A Hard Day's Night. It's kind of like it all gets flattened into this Beatlesque whimsicality, um, which kind of drives me crazy because what makes the Beatles interesting is that development and the way they changed and the way their 1966 album reflected 1966 and their 1968 album reflected 1968. And all of that is kind of ironed out of this movie. That that kind of drove me crazy. Right. I mean, the biggest uh, sort of like musical leap that we see uh, Jack do is bring in a brass band for All You Need Is Love. And I mean, that doesn't even register as like a blip in terms of like all of the textural and uh, innovation and like timbre that the Beatles played around with. Right. Beyonce had a whole damn marching band and he's got like one guy on a tuba. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> Get with it, man. Got to raise the stakes, people. All right. So I want to I want to close by with a little bit of a gimmick here um, and ask you guys, uh, pretend that the, all the lights around the world have just gone out for 12 seconds and you wake up and you're the only person who remembered the Beatles, which song do you lay claim to? Since this is my idea, I'm going to go first. And I've decided on I'm Looking Through You. Just a song from uh, Rubber Soul. Mm-hmm. Not a hit. Um, but Great song. But one that, I, one that I've always liked, it's probably one of the, Paul McCartney is known as the Beatles softy. This is maybe the meanest song he's written, certainly up there. Um, it's a song about coming to the end of a, a relationship and realizing all the bad things about the other person that you kind of blinded yourself to before. And it, what's great about it is it's a really peppy pop song. Like this is this is one of those pop songs where I feel like you can listen to it like 40 or 50 times. And then one day you're like, huh, maybe I should listen to the lyrics. And then you go, holy shit, it's about that? It's kind of vicious. Yes. Like I, it, I had that moment. I remember listening to uh, like – 
my example is always like Kelly Clarkson, since you've been gone. You know, the line, since you've been gone, I get what I want. And I really realized that you can read I get what I want in two different ways. Right. Both both obtain and understand. Um, so I love those little kind of bombs that like nestle in pop songs and only, maybe they'd only make themselves apparent to me because I'm incredibly slow. That's also a, a <laughs> part of this premise. But th- this is a song that I just listened to for a long time and loved. It's got this really great kind of acidic organ riff in it. And then one day I realized that this, you know, sort of peppy, like lovely Paul McCartney song was actually saying these really kind of dark and cutting and yet I think very like true to life things. So that's the one I'm going to pretend that I've written. Um, who wants to go next? I can go next. All right. So initially, like the very first song that popped into my head was Across the Universe, because I feel like it's such a good encapsulation of like a lot of the different things that they can do. But a John song, I, interestingly. Give me a break, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> go, on, go on. But I think that I have to claim while my guitar gently weeps. No, I, nobody told you. I know also not a Paul song, but it's just like, I think the most exquisite, like lovely song that they have. And so that's the one that I want. Uh, Chris, which song have you just written yourself? Well, okay. If I'm following the conceit of this movie and, you know, given the, the point we were all making about this movie, that basically this one guy gets to write the work of at least two men, often three and even occasionally four, if you include the two songs Ringo wrote, I'm going to pick a day in the life. Which is not only a great song, it's basically a John song with a middle eight contributed by Paul in a completely different style. And so you get basically like one of the most John John songs of all time and one of the most Paul contributions of all time in a single song. And I get to say that I wrote the whole damn thing. Um, so yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to claim that, uh, I, I wrote a day in the life. Chris, That's a very are, music critic answer. You are you are a singular, solitary genius, perhaps the greatest singer songwriter of all time. <laughs> and um, I dreamed up the the closing chord <laughs> all by myself. And you played the entire symphony orchestra. I did. I did swirling on my instruments all by myself. Ama- amazing work, Chris. Really, Thanks. congratulations. Thanks. You've done a great job. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this late spoiler special. I've been Sam Adams. Uh, with me are Chris Malanfi. Remember, in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. Um, and Ngu Kang. Bye, dude. <laughs> and thank you all for listening. <laughs> <laughs>